This is the Garden Cinema Film Talk, presented by Michael Chambers and Abla Kandalaft. We chat with filmmakers, actors, producers and film commentators about the art of film. We talk about the films they made, how they made them and the ones they'd like to make. This week, Michael and I chat to Dr. Lucy Bolton. Lucy is a reader in film studies at Queen Mary University, and her fields of research include film stardom and celebrity. She recently co-edited a collection entitled Lasting Stars, Images That Fade and Personas That Endure. We invited her on the podcast to take a deeper look at Marlena Dietrich's career, persona and lasting influence, to mark a season dedicated to the actress. Thank you so much, Lucy, for joining us today. That's absolute very, pleasure. Very kind. Michael was delighted to have you with us to talk about Marlena Dietrich, and I was wondering why the season. What was it about the actress that you were interested in? Oh, what Marlena Dietrich? Ah, how can you ask? How many actresses are like Marlena Dietrich? So unique, so strong, so unforgettable. There's such power. We're doing Anna Magnani as well. We've done her and. Uh, there again, another formidable actress who dominates the screen. So, in a way, it speaks for itself. Well, that's why your work's so interesting, Lucy, because you wrote about the enduring power of certain actresses and certain actors. What makes for her lasting power in particular? I, I think it is an interesting idea, actually, how some stars endure and some stars don't. I mean, Michael says instantly, well, of course, why not? And who would argue with you? Of course, there should be a regular Dietrich season yeah. as often as possible. But would there be, for example, um, you know, it's less, one's less likely to encounter a Myrna Loy season or yeah. a Rosalind Russell season. So there are certain stars and of course there's a difference between the film scholar which i am the film academic the cinephile um, and the general cinema going population as to how well known these people are i find most students have seen images of marilyn monroe including the white dress blowing up over the grating from the seven-year itch but they've never heard of the seven-year itch and some of them actually think she was a model rather yeah. than an actress so they've never actually seen her and my um strong belief my conviction about these stars is that you have to see them perform. You have to see their films because Dietrich's face and image is iconic. Whether she's in the tuxedo or whether she's sitting in the top hat with her leg in a kind of principal boy type stance from the Blue Angel or in a foreign affair, many of these images are iconic. When she was older, performing as a cabaret artist around the world, London Palladium, down the road, yeah, yeah. Vegas, all over Europe, all over the world. Those images are iconic. But it's not until you see her speaking, laughing, emoting, loving, and walking, fantastic walk she's got, on screen, that you have a richer relationship with them and you understand the fascination of seeing them over and over again. Yeah, well, it's um, there are some actors or actresses who just have this inner strength, this inner whatever it is. I'm not quite sure what it is, but 
all people have. There are some people walk into a room and everyone looks at them. They dominate. And that's the same with an actress. Theatre or screen, if they're on stage, they dominate the stage. Um, and you can't easily say what it is. It's something from within them. A still photograph wouldn't reveal it for a second. A still photograph, they all look the same. Uh, well, they all look different, but each equal, um, as it were, impact, unless somebody looks grotesque. But um, as soon as you see them acting, some actors hold the stage, and it's not because they're such a powerful personality necessarily, because Marilyn Monroe had something within her, the very opposite of uh, Marlene Dietrich, um, but she could dominate a screen. Um, and it's difficult to say why. And there are people who, who knew Marilyn Monroe in person, in real life, would say, well, they don't understand it, because in real life, she, she just seems like, you know, every other woman they meet, the prettier, but, uh, you know, didn't sort of dominate a crowd. But when you see her acting on screen, she holds the screen in an extraordinary way, and Marlena was the same. And, of course, there is this, um, what we might call the sort of ineffable, magical power of cinema to elevate a face, a set of features. Oh, you had the close-up, of course. Uh, exactly. <laughs> um, from Epstein, who wrote, you know, magically, John Epstein, about the power of, the magical power of the close-up. Um, Edgar Moran wrote about the sort of celestial power of these stars and Roland Barthes, the face of Garbo. He talked about her face as being like a mask, which um, it is a more complicated way of thinking about it. But I do think that there are certain faces... You mentioned Monroe, definitely Hepburn, Audrey Hepburn's another, Catherine Hepburn's another. Betty um, Davis. Yes, and they're Crawford. And their faces are enlivened and sort when of they, celebrated by the cinematic right. lens. Um, they they are, sort of glow, right. they're luminous. Yeah, yeah. Now, of course, with Dietrich, we can see her pre-Von Sternberg. Yeah. And she was still a very attractive, lively... I've never, I've never seen her in a silent film. Well, they are. she is um, very winning and yeah. very already a very strong character, as yeah. you say. What Sternberg did, especially once he, they got to Hollywood yeah. in 30, 1930, so that we're talking about the, the 20s, Dietrich, was, uh, was acting, was yeah. um, working on stage and, and screen. Cabaret. But once she got to Hollywood... And the, the Hollywood transformation, which I think, you know, one can overstate. It wasn't dramatic. She lost weight and changed her hair and makeup, basically. Yeah. But that, those makeup changes can make a huge difference. Yeah. The emphasis on the eyes and the cheekbones, yeah, yeah, yeah. filling out the lips a little, yeah. changed the proportions of the face. Yeah. And von Sternberg lit her in a way yeah, of course. that made those cheekbones look almost supernatural so that she achieved this kind of glow she also did have quite a large face now i know this sounds quite a strange thing to say but a lot of these stars have large heads large faces <laughs> and their faces work well yeah the plate large planes of their face work well when lit on screen if you think about many of them for you know men too brando dean um uh, clark gable and you think about the women carol lombard um myrna Loy, I mentioned Crawford, Davis, proportion-wise, they tend to have quite large faces. Well, if and you heads. look at a picture of a photograph of Marlena, um, where she's not, when it's not taken from a still from a Sternberg film, 
she can look quite plain. Her face from the front, without special lighting. Um, she obviously she was never ugly. That that's goes for that's for sure. But she could look relatively plain. Um, it was a rather round or squarish face, um, a bit flat. The cheekbones really stood out once the lighting was done in a certain way. But if you look at the photos where the lighting isn't done in this way, she doesn't look particularly, um, no, certainly not beautiful. There's but when you see the lighting yes. in the Sternberg and style, the, and the makeup, of course, as well, and of course the eyelashes yeah. and the and the eyebrows raised inches yes, above yeah. her eyes, oh, they changed throughout her career. Oh, the yes, shape of the eyebrows. Yes. Well, they got higher and higher, <laughs> didn't they, as the years passed? But also, she, her profile yes. offers a very different look than face on. Yeah. So face on, yes, with the lighting, Unless there you is have this the butterfly kind of, lighting. There is this kind of flatness yeah. with the treatments. From the side, she's actually got quite a sort of pert, pretty nose. Um, and so there are certain mm. films, for example, Dishonored when she plays yeah. the younger woman or or um, the Scarlet Empress when she plays the younger version. Yeah. When shot from the side, she looks far more sort of winsome and girlish. Yeah. And I think that's something that's very interesting about Star these iconic star yeah. faces um, is that they often they have a lot of options yeah they're not one note faces they yeah. tend to offer a lot of possibilities of yeah. readings we might say but or experiences but again of course as I say you have to see them and another fantastic thing about Dietrich was her physique her posture yeah the way in which she carried herself yeah. beautiful amazing long slender legs she always said, there's nothing special about my legs. I just know what to do with them. You know, I just know yeah. how to use them. You know, there may be something in that. But she was, a, she moved fantastically well. Well, when she moved to Hollywood, of course, it was the legs that she was most conscious of. She said, I, 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 they sell me on my legs. It's my legs that have made me a star from the Blue Angel. And back in the 40s, Betty Grable and stars like that, they used to... The, the the studios used to say make a big point of having insured their legs for a million dollars. Do you yes, remember yes, a million yeah, dollar yeah, legs? Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the one of the things about Dietrich, you compare to Monroe, um, she's not curvaceous like Monroe. No, so and no. her legs, although they're beautifully shaped, they're quite slender. So when she wears a tuxedo, when she wears wide pants and yeah. a shirt and tie. Um, or a monocle, yeah. or a top hat. Yeah, yeah. She convinces. She looks both elements of masculinity and femininity in her sexuality. Monroe in a tuxedo would look very different. You know, when I think yeah. of her and Jane Russell in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, there's a, a photograph of them at one stage, and there's a sequence that wasn't actually used in the film where they've got a sort of tailcoat and top hat on. And obviously they look like showgirls. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Dietrich looks, she has that Well, look. she's bringing to Hollywood the um, Weimar Berlin um, ethos that nobody else in Hollywood had. Decadent 1920s Weimar Berlin and top hat and tails and so on goes with that. The uh, cabaret uh, persona that she brought with her for, for Morocco, but the opening scene where she's in the cabaret. There's a, a looseness that Hollywood 
lacked. Even we're talking pre-code Hollywood here, pre-production code Hollywood here. There well, was they had still Mae West, but that's nothing to do with the decadent um, cabaret ethos. They're interesting to compare as well. Yeah. I think I was yeah. thinking about that walking around the garden cinema, looking at the artwork. Yeah. I see you've got Mae West oh, yes. and Dietrich. West made a couple of brilliant films. She yeah. was unique on yeah. screen. She didn't have the cinematic longevity that Dietrich had. Didn't have the sophistication. For all kinds of reasons. I think Dietrich became a very good actress. And I think Mae West was always Mae West. That's right. In a wonderful way, but always Mae West. And cinema, um, she was too big for cinema. It it tried to contain her and she she was off. Dietrich, when you compare some of the older films from Hollywood, like The Lady is Willing or... um, something like that, you know, from, from later on. She's very different. She, and I find them interesting how she has essentially been Hollywoodized into someone more like uh, Rosalind Russell or, or you know, it, so she still wears a load of extraordinary hats in The Lady is Willing, but it doesn't have any of the decadence or loose European influence that all those... All those hats and veils from The Devil is a Woman or something like that. So it's those early films, those early Sternberg half a dozen films, where she's covered in um, fripperies and veils and uh, nets with animals. And she's an itinerant nomadic character with her suitcase. Sexually, she's ambiguous. She is um, constantly sexual in the way in which she relates to men and women. And, you know, when she says in Shanghai Express, it's taken more than one man to turn me into Shanghai Lily. It's electrifying. No one could deliver that line like she does. No, that's right. How much of it is Sternberg's work? So how did he work with her? And why did, was he specifically looking for those European characteristics? He was German. He was German. He was a European. He'd, He'd been, I think, born in America, but he was very much still German. He could see what was needed to bring out this extraordinary, as I say, this Weimar tradition. Uh, he could do it. And so the, the Sternberg films are one thing, and they're very, as you say, stylized, very um, sort of German expressionist um, uh, tech, directing technique. They're quite mesmerizing works yeah. of quite, art. But I they're think. very different from any of the films that yes. she appeared in afterwards with other directors. And he had the magic. She knew that, and she was so distressed when he decided no longer to to work with her because together they were a team. They really did create this image. And Dietrich, of course, knew that she created a product, and she was very different in her private life from this product she created for the screen with Sternberg. And when Sternberg went, she still knew exactly how she should be lit. She'd tell the cameramen, the lighting people, exactly what to do. But um, she didn't have Sternberg to create this, these wonderful films. I think, so I, <clears throat> I think I would say that the influence of Sternberg, um, von Sternberg, they, they clearly, together they made... Dietrich the star. They did. Yeah. Sternberg, as you say, knew how to light her. He saw in her the material he did, that he yeah. could export to Hollywood and, and that she would be something special. I do think that a couple of other directors worked well with her. Yeah. I think Lubitsch worked well with her. And I think Billy Wilder. 
in foreign affair. Well, Lubitsch knew the the past like yeah. Sternberg did. As, and Wilder, they had that German emigre yeah. connection yeah. as well. What I love about foreign affair is that it's like um, the Dietrich from the early days, yeah. 20 years later. Yeah, yeah. And going back to Berlin, which must have been very difficult for her conceptually because she was so anti-Nazi, she'd taken American citizenship, she was so, she'd, she'd really, even though the Nazi film industry wanted her, oh, she'd yes. completely rejected them, she felt so strongly about it. And here she was in a foreign affair, playing a woman with a past who had essentially would have been considered to be a collaborator. She'd been a kept woman by German officers. And Dietrich, that was anathema to Dietrich. But in that film, you see her, what might have happened, you know, to to Lola Lola had she stayed. And you see her singing in the, the for the first time i think in a very similar way to those early performances such as in morocco wilder really gets gets it the performance in that film it was almost as if sternberg was still working with her and you know that billy wilder he wrote this film just at the end of the war um and he it was everyone it would be set in berlin and they knew what the story was and billy wilder had to choose who was going to play this role and you probably know this story. He wanted Marlena to play it, but he knew that because the part was of a Nazi collaborator who, whose role in the film was to lure the uh, head of Gestapo out of hiding, um, he knew she wouldn't want to play it. The last thing, as you say, that she anti-Nazi, she wouldn't have wanted to play that part. And he got her to do it. <laughs> very clever. Billy Wilder, very clever fellow. He... He did three or four screen tests of actresses to play this role. He didn't want any of them. He wanted Marlena. So he, he, he phoned Marlena and said, can I come to... Because she was in Paris at the time. And he said, can I come and see you? And I want, to, I want some advice, he said. So he went to see her in her flat and he showed her the screen tests of these three or four actresses. And she watched them. And you know what Marlena was like, very critical of other performance and she she used she would say to billy wilder after each screed test observed she'd say no 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 not at all not at all utterly unsuitable and they went through them all she dismissed them all and then billy wilder said exactly what he'd planned to say at the very beginning he said well marlena of course you're the only one who can really play this i think it's a brilliantly cast film actually yeah that, because the comparison between her and the infuriating Jean arthur who <laughs> i find oh, yes. almost unwatchable <laughs> in that film who's billed as top billing above yeah. marlena in is, the... is amazing at setting off the yeah. class and history yeah. and poise of dietrich he really does what he really does dietrich a favor there with that casting oh, yeah. i think and it's superb yes because Marlene, in fact, you know, dominates. She's in it in most of. In, she has in the film about what over half of it, isn't she? Um, although I don't although know. French no, there, had the lead role in. There it. are always longer sections yeah. without her than I than I want. That's right. That's <laughs> but it. as we were saying, she's the one with the lasting yes. star power. Out I of think all you're right. Yeah. yeah, and you've mentioned a couple of time times, Michael, that she dominates, and I think that that is absolutely true particularly of those earlier films she's never she's never challenged on screen by and again yeah. of course that's part of the von sternberg star creation of her but even with someone like gary cooper or carrie grant they still um sort of have to 
respond to her. She is she dominates every scene that she's in, and and usually, the men in the films in, in Dishonored and Shanghai Express are just not on the same page no. as her. No. She's so superior to them. Absolutely. It can yeah. be a problem actually because yeah. you can think, well, what on earth? she's supposed to be in love with this man. Yes. What what on earth the is doctor, there that the doctor in the uh, in Shanghai. Clive Brook, yeah. yeah. Um, and, but you see, there's a wonderful scene where yeah. when they meet, you know, they're reunited. Yeah. And she's on the, the train and she takes off his cap. Yeah. Puts on his cap. So she's dressed in this exquisite, I mean, her clothes are never more exquisite than in Shanghai Express, with feathers and lace and crystals and beads. And she puts on his military cap and kind of flicks the cap, flicks the peak and holds his riding crop. And it's so sort of hinting at perversion. It's so sexual. It's that's true. And it's it makes true. you think. And poor Clive Brook, all he can do <laughs> is say, "Well, how was I supposed to ever get over you?" You know. I mean, of course, you can see that. How could anyone yeah. get over her? And in Morocco, Gary Cooper is completely. He, he's overshadowed. I, I think uh, yes. I think he was also aware of the von Sternberg machine there as yeah. well. I think he didn't particularly enjoy working with him or want to well, work with him again. Well, because Sternberg saw this as a vehicle for his his protégé. Yeah. I don't like to think all of a protégé. I understand why we use yeah. that word. But in fact, I see them as very equal collaborators. Yeah. Um, and uh, as you say, she, she, she learnt a great deal from him. And if you hear her, her Desert Island Discs are available to listen to on BBC Sounds. You can hear her. And she will say, and she will always say in an interview, oh, Oh, he was everything. I would be nothing without him. But I think she, she buys into that mythology of the complete creation. Of course, she, there was more to her than that. Yeah, she but she, she did that. That was a tendency of hers to attribute her her success to some mentor because she did exactly the same in old age when she said that without Bert Bacharach, she wouldn't have been such a success on the world stage as a singer, cabaret uh, artist. The way in which her delivery of songs changes throughout her career is also very moving. Where have all the young men gone? Is heartbreaking when she sings it when she's older. Just where have the gigolo. flowers gone? Yes, but yeah. she changes it to where have all the young men yeah. gone after the war, and and just the gigolo. Yeah, and of course the the end of her life is poignant. You know, she spent the last decade of her life ah. in bed with her maid bringing her macaroons from La Durée and uh, speaking on the telephone all day long. But if you speak to her or if you hear from her grandson. He will say, well, I, sp- I spoke to her all the time. She was always ringing one of us or the other. So she, I think she made a real decision. That image is dead now. The image is over. I cannot be seen after, after things like Well, like Paris her great, burning, her great rival. Sugar. When she went to Hollywood, she was the, it would get Greta Garber, the great rival. They brought her to Hollywood as a rival to Greta Garber. And Greta Garber did the same thing in her old age. But of course, there's something about thinking about endurance. And of course, Garbo stands for so many things. But Dietrich is such a familiar image from popular culture, whether it's Uta Lempa doing her one woman Dietrich show about the time when she's got a phone call from Melania Dietrich, which is fascinating whether it's RuPaul's Drag Race or Lily Savage or um, her music on Spotify her films on uh, all kinds of platforms there's that fascinating documentary Marlena um, by Maximilian Schell where he was thinking he was going to interview her 
And in fact, when it <laughs> turned yeah. around, she wouldn't be shot. She wouldn't be phone. seen. So it's mm. all audio. And the job that he makes out of that is, is amazing. So she is very popular. Her image is very popular because it's so fascinating in a way that Garbo's I would say, Isn't, I yeah. hope not controversially, is not true. fascinating. Yeah, yeah, no, that's spot on. What, she, what do you think of the yeah. legacies? How would you compare the legacies, Deatrix and Garbo's? I think that they're in a different league from each other. I think they're very different. Garbo stands for a certain type of, as Edgar Morin describes, this kind of celestial early star. When you see her in, you know, something like. Grand Hotel, you know, I want to be alone. She's, she stands for a certain, a certain period of time and a certain way of thinking about stars as deities. And very well behaved. Yeah. Uh, I mean, was it Dietrich tells that story, doesn't he, about how well, when they met, Garbo was sitting on the floor and got up without touching anything. And she said she was a very fit woman. Like yeah. you could tell she admired her physical yeah. strength yeah, and bearing. Yeah. But yeah, she seemed quite clean living. Yeah. Her sexuality is of interest now, but her, her lifestyle less so. Um, and whereas Dietrich, there's so she much was, to her. She was outrageous. You mentioned the contrast yeah. with her private life. Yeah. I think that's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, she, she she would describe herself as a kind of German housefrau, you know, that she loved. She would be the first person with her rubber gloves on cleaning up the Hollywood canteen. Yeah. If someone was ill on set, she'd make them a flask of chicken yeah. soup. She loved baking. She yeah. loved um, domesticity. And she was quite nosy and domineering as yeah. well. She wanted to get into everything. So this, the type of person that she was actually seems very different. And, and a good mother. From the cool icon on screen well certainly maria um her daughter has things to say about her but yes not in the same way that christina crawford did (laughs) no 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 that's right so she was a good yeah but she 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 on her private life she was she was who she was she was a natural that you know she was an exceptional woman even in private life she attracted all the men she played with fell for her she had an amazing uh, personal magnetism, sexual magnetism. But in the film, she and Bert Sternberg had, had created a product, an image, a, um, a persona, a screen identity. I think interesting, talking about the sort of, for want of a better word, weakness of some of the male stars' images that she played up against, in her private life, she was connected to some extremely strong characters. Yeah. Ernest Hemingway, right. uh, Jean Gabin, you know, yeah. strong characters, oh, yeah. John Wayne, and women, Mercedes da Costa, uh, Kay yeah. Francis. And if you go to the permanent exhibition in the film house in Berlin, um, which I go to every time yeah. I go to Berlin, it's exquisite. They have the tuxedo, they have costumes, they have her makeup box, they have little things, but they also have a whole kind of section of gifts and notes from lovers. Yeah. And it's fascinating. I think it's what's so very interesting is that um, she had so many lovers, so many men in love with her, but what is interesting is that they were devoted to her. I mean, Jean Gabin was with her for probably about five years. He, when he went to Hollywood, he lived, they lived together for years. After the war, they lived together in Paris for a while. And, um, during the war, he was in the French army and she, 
she was singing for the American troops, for the Allied troops all over the world. And she made a point of, because I think he was in a tanker corps or something, and she um, made a point of going to where he was to keep up with him. And, and, and she, he was devoted to her. And she, and she was, she was heartbroken well, yeah. when she went off with someone else because they were, they were separate for so long. He came back after the war and they lived together, but he could see that she'd already um, found someone else. I think it was an American general or something. And of course she was married to Rudy, oh, Rudy Seymour, <laughs> whole throughout. Life. And Maria's not father. just married to him, but a constant touch with yes, him. Yeah. Writing, letters, holidays. <laughs> writing letters every week to each other. Yes, yeah. so sharing, these, sharing copies of her love letters to other lovers right. with Rudy. That's right. And so these men were devoted to her. And poor old Jean Gabin was heartbroken when at last he saw that he'd lost her. Heartbroken. It was, it's very moving how I distressed think, he became. I think I'm right in saying... She was with Douglas Fairbanks Jr. for a while as well, and I think I'm right in saying that she finished that relationship because she caught him reading some of her letters to Rudy, I think, or love letters. But yes, he was so he became obsessed with wanting to see what was in these letters. So yes, she was a... Yeah, she's certainly an intriguing character. And of course, realistically as well, incredibly fashionable. She wore clothes, whether it was dresses or tuxes, absolutely beautifully. So she has a recurrent presence in fashion magazines as a beauty icon, a fashion icon. On YouTube, there are beauty tutorials of how to do your makeup like Molly and Dietrich. Her, her, her outfits. There was a famous photograph of, um, Kate Moss as Dietrich and indeed Marilyn as Dietrich in the Blue Angel taken for I think it was Life magazine in the late 50s in a series of photographs where Marilyn appears as uh, Theda Barra and Jean Harlow and one of them is Dietrich in the most exquisite um, recreation of the top hat shot from the Blue Angel so there is something very also painterly about those von Sternberg images and very fashionable and so she endures through that as well. Given what you've just said has her persona been revisited over time has is is she now I guess appreciated for different qualities that she was maybe a decade ago, two decades ago? That's a really good question. And I think you always have to think like that. Like when you, if you study stars, you know, the famous film academic Richard Dyer said that the thing about stardom is that they're made up of all these different signs and that changes over time. So you get, um, and they often hold things in tension. So Marilyn held innocence and sexuality in tension. Marlena, we might think, held masculinity and femininity or domesticity and sexuality in tension. And yes, as the years go by, as the decades go by, more information about them comes out, like perhaps about the type of war she had or the type of lovers that she had. And so, yes, that image changes over time. I think that something that's appreciated more, that's going on more now and in the last decade or so, is an attempt, is work on certain stars to try and recuperate them from the idea that they were completely dominated by another. So, for example, Dietrich and Sternberg. I've done work on Vivian Lee in relation to Olivier. Um, things like that, about sort of bringing the work of these actors, actresses, into their own by focusing on their own contribution to their star image and not seeing them simply as a discovery or a protégé. And so I think that there's, they become more independent 
um, as the years go by. I was watching The Blue Angel the other day again. I love the film. I think, personally, I think it's her best. The the uh, original Bla, uh, the, the Blue Angel. Um, and, and I was watching it again, and I thought, um, I don't think she got any better under Sternberg as the movies developed in Hollywood. They certainly, clearly the technique, the, the, the Blue Angel was 1930. It was, a, it was one of the first, it was, the, I think, one of the first German talkies. And it's extraordinary what he produced as, as a first talkie. Quite incredible. And, and, and Marlena, what I love about the Blue Angel is that Marlena was still in Berlin, this is what made her the big name, but she was already a, a, a film star in Berlin, and she was still at home, on her home territory, and there was an authenticity to it which is so striking when you see it again. And in a sense, she lost that a bit as the, the in the Sternberg years, where they developed this, they, they really focused on the image, the image, the image, building her up to rival Greta Garbo, to be a big American name. Um, the Hollywood uh, machine went into, uh, into, into, into action, full-blown, and they developed very consciously, and Marlena was part of this. She was very happy with it. She wasn't against it. She and Sternberg, it was a sort of folie à deux. They both combined to make the most of this image. And in a sense, you had to, it was so competitive in Hollywood, you know what it's like, building your image, building your press image, your, um, uh, it was, it, it went with the selling of the films. And so they were intent on doing it. And in doing this, and when you look at the Blue Angel, which was made in Germany, one her first sound film, it was, there was the authenticity there of the real Greta, of the real um, Marlena, um, and before the image was developed, and you compare her in the Blue Angel, there's an authenticity, a tremendously moving sort of strength to it, and in Hollywood, it gradually got bigger and bigger and bigger and more refined and more, more consciously built until it ended with, you had the, the Scarlet Empress with all the, the, the with all the, um, the refinements you're talking about, the finery, you ending up with, um, with the devil is a woman where it's taken to a sort of extreme of, of, of brilliantly made, brilliant film. Technically so much better than the earlier Sternberg films. It's a brilliant film, but the image has been developed and developed to a degree where it almost becomes a spoof of the original idea. It's also a question of values, I think. So yeah. one of the things that's so devastating about the Blue Angel yeah. is her callousness yeah. towards Emilianics. Yeah, yeah. And it's quite brilliant and, so and quite devastating. It's quite devastating. Yeah. It's a it, sad film. It really is. Um, and yeah. yes, and although it continues in a way... Yeah, not the same tragedy. It's not as easy in Hollywood yeah. to have a genuinely callous yeah. performance like that character. Yeah, that's right. So what's, what's created more of yeah. is the idea that she is this irresistible enigma that men yeah. can't help but, but um, you know, moths, moths to a flame. But, yeah. but in, in The Blue Angel, she knows exactly what, yeah. what she's doing. And that is something that I think Hollywood would be, is less happy to perpetuate. Oh, yes. and that's why The Blue Angel is such a wonderful film. 
it's captured something in Dietrich's life. That, but let me ask you, yeah. I, mean, I completely agree yeah. that there's an authenticity yeah. and a kind of uh, very natural feeling of the set and the stage yeah. and if, quite sort of spit and sawdust yeah. to the Blue Angel. Yeah. But what about those performances that she turns in towards the end of her film acting career in things like Touch of Evil, Witness of the Prosecution. Yeah, but you see that the spoof has been left behind then. They've moved away from the Sternberg image and to, I mean, Billy Wilder wants her to act. And um, of Charles Lawton, when she's with Charles Lawton, I mean, one of the few people that can hold a stage when Charles Lawton's on it. I mean, that was extraordinary how she does that. And I agree with you completely. That's it. But it's a different thing. Here's Marlena as an actress, not just as a, a, a Berlin um, a cabaret artist. Her face, her face at the end of Touch of Evil. Yeah. When she says, you know, isn't someone going to drag him out of there? And then says, you know, he was he was some kind of a man and walks off. And also that wonderful... It's mag- magnetic. And the other one that I just can't ever forget is a touch of evil. Orson Welles is this corrupt police chief um, who's an old friend, an old flame of, uh, of Marlena, who's now a sort of uh, down-and-out uh, fortune teller. And, and he goes to see her again and he says... And she's... I think she's playing with her tarot cards or something. And he says to her, Marlena, what do they say about... Tell me, what do they show me? What's, what fu- what's my future, he says. She looks at him and she says, you have no future. Or something to that mm. effect. Mm. But it's so strong, you realise this is a death sentence. Yes, yes, yes. There's something about the ageing star, actually, that's very moving like that, whether it's Ava Gardner or Rita Hayworth. Yeah. You know, you can see there's something often very poignant about those later performances. But with Dietrich, she seems... The authenticity is still there. It's so believable that Lola Lola would end up like this. I'm often less convinced, although I enjoy, the more imperious performances in things like Stage Fright or Witness of the Prosecution so fantastic because it's got this double edge to it as we won't but but I, I think she's she comes over she's most effective, she's most emotionally convincing and most sympathetic when she's playing, when she's got that degree of sort of the down at heel about her. And I think that nobody does that. Nobody has that dignity like she has. That's a beautiful note to end it on. Ah. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Lucy. Thank, Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much for inviting me. Good luck with the season. <laughs> I'll certainly be here to watch them. This was the Garden Cinema Film Talk. You can find out more about the cinema screenings and seasons on our website, thegardencinema.co.uk and follow us, send us comments and feedback on our social media, at The Garden Cinema. Thank you for listening.